Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. 1 Samuel chapter 14, and we're going to begin at the 24th verse. And we do have a title for this lesson or message tonight as usual, and it comes in the form of a question, and the title is, Are You a Helper or a Hindrance? Are you a helper or a hindrance? Now, in our previous study, Jonathan and his armor bearer, that is with God's help, they killed about 20 Philistine men. Now, now this situation in the earthquake that God sent had the Philistines terrified. And then we see in the scriptures that Saul and those who are with him, they join in that battle. They joined the momentum that was started by Jonathan and his armor bearer or his assistant along, of course, with the Lord's help. And then when Saul joined the battle with those who were with him, there was so much confusion. And you can see this in the scriptures that the Philistines began to fight and kill one another. Then the scriptures also tell us in our previous study that other Hebrews who had previously defected to the Philistines. They joined their camp. They they went away from them, and they began to fight against them as well and to chase them. And then those Israelites who had previously gone into hiding, they began to chase after the Philistines in the battle as well. And so you saw all of these things happen in our previous study. And so, once again, we are going to start with verse 24, but before we read the scriptures, I do want to pray, keeping, of course, that uh, information from the previous study in mind, as well as the title in mind, Are You a Helper or a Hindrance? So, keeping all that in mind, before we read verse 24, let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for allowing us to study your word. We pray for understanding. We pray for fresh insight. We pray for a fresh filling of your spirit, and we pray that you help us to apply your word to our lives, Lord, and and I do pray for the gift of teaching that you would help me to rightly divide the word of truth. It's such a blessing to be able to break the bread of your word with your people, and if there's somebody who's not saved, Father, who may be listening or maybe in attendance, they don't remember a time ever uh, repenting and, and, and putting their faith or trust in Jesus Christ. I, I pray that you'll draw them tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So once again, First Samuel 14, verse 24, it says, And the men of Israel were distressed. So they were hard-pressed. They were worn out that day. Remember that day I, I shared before the prayer, the day of battle where they were chasing the Philistines. They were worn out. Why? Because Saul had placed the people or the army under oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. And so none of the people tasted food. Now all the people or the soldiers of the land, they came to a forest and there was honey on the ground. And when the people had come into the woods, there was the honey dripping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. 
But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people or the army with the oath. Therefore, he stretched out the end of the rod that was in his hand and he dipped it in a honeycomb and he put his hand to his mouth and his countenance brightened. In other words, his energy was restored. And then in verse 28, it says that one of the people said, your father, speaking to Jonathan, strictly charged the people with an oath saying, curse is the man who eats food this day. And the people, the army, the troops, they were faint. They were weak. They were exhausted. And so on the day of battle against the Philistines, when the Israelites had the momentum and they had their, their enemies, these Philistines, on the run. We see that Saul had placed the troops under oath. And that oath came with a curse. Curse is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. But if we really remember the previous lessons if we really remember the previous victories, even the victories Saul experienced, even the victories that Jonathan experienced, we come to understand that Saul really didn't have to force his army to agree with this vow to fast until evening. Why? Because God had given them victories already without even doing that, without them ever having to enter into a vow and fast. God had already given them victory after victory. They experienced success. And so it's what, this was unnecessary. And sometimes like Saul, just like he made this unnecessary oath and, and, and caused the army to faint or to become weak, sometimes we too, we do the unnecessary we do something that God didn't tell us that we needed to do. And this reminds me of a passage in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. And the Holy Spirit, through the apostle Paul, asked the question. He, he asked them, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, with the capital S, speaking of the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. So this is God. So you've begun in the Spirit. Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? And so that same question that is posed to the Christians in Galatia can be posed to us as well. Because many of us have heard that we're saved by grace through faith. And it is true as it tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. Yes, we're saved by grace through faith. Salvation is a gift to be received by faith. Yes, we repent, we put our faith, we put our trust in Jesus Christ and, and we make him our personal Savior and Lord. And, and at that point, the Holy Spirit comes in us and he indwells us permanently. And so we all have begun in the Spirit and we have all have experienced many victories in the Spirit We've all have experienced many six different types of success in our walk. Because of the Holy Spirit. But some of us try to perfect our walk. We try to become spiritually mature in our flesh. We begin to make unnecessary vows like, like Saul did in this lesson. The King Saul. 
We begin to put unnecessary burdens upon ourselves. And instead of helping us in our walk, it harms us. Because something that has begun in the spirit, our salvation, our walk, our victories that have begun in the spirit. Now we're trying to perfect it in the flesh. And so that same question or those same two questions posed to the Galatian saints can be posed to us as well. And we see this in our lesson tonight. King Saul, you didn't have to do this. You're doing what is unnecessary. And so the question tonight is what unnecessary thing have we done? What unnecessary thing have we placed upon ourselves? What unnecessary burden have we put upon ourselves to try to gain victories that have already been experienced in the Lord in the past? You see, when this happens, when we do that, then what happens is that we take our eyes off of Jesus and we begin to trust in ourselves. We outsmart ourselves. But picking up in 1 Samuel 14, verse 29, it says, But Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance has brightened. Look at how energized I am. My energy has been restored because I've tasted a little of this honey. And how much better if the troops had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. They would have been energized or refreshed as well, just like I am, in other words. And he says, for now, would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? And so Saul, of course, we know him to be the first king of the nation of Israel, So obviously he is a government leader and I point that out because it goes to show us that some government leaders make poor decisions and they make matters worse for the people. And we've seen this time after time. We've seen this throughout human history. And there's a scripture in Proverbs that is absolutely true because once again, we've seen this over and over in history and even in in recent times where the, the Bible says that when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Well, we've seen that throughout history, even in our lifetimes. You know, but but at least a couple of things come out of knowing this truth. That that yes, some government leaders like like King Saul make poor decisions, and it and it harms the folks. It harms the people in that nation. But one thing that comes out of knowing that is that it's a reminder to us to pray for the government leaders, which is biblical. First Timothy two. Verses 1 through 4, if you want to write that down and read it later, we're to pray for our government leaders. Oh, they need wisdom. Our government leaders, they need Jesus. They need salvation just like anyone else. But also, there's another truth that come out of knowing that. That some of our government leaders make poor decisions that harm us. Just knowing that truth, it it also makes us long for Jesus to come back because what we see is that there's no human government that is perfect. That is, there's no human ruler who is perfect. 
There's no human ruler who is the Messiah who can take his place because the Messiah is fully God and fully man at the same time and is none other than Jesus Christ. But but when we see the state of the world, the state of our country, and and you can look through the history books and, and see how imperfect human rule is, oh yes, Not only does it remind us to pray for government and our government leaders, but yes, it makes us long for Jesus. In fact, it it makes us have a light touch on the things of this world. And and it makes us long for that that, that new world that's going to come. It makes us long for that millennial reign of Christ, which is different from the rapture because the rapture is Jesus coming back for his church. We meet him in the air. And we'll so ever be with him. But the second coming is us coming with him. And he'll actually touch down and he'll rule on this earth for a thousand years. And during that time, the, the enemy, Satan, will be locked up. And so there, there's going to be knowledge all around the world, the knowledge of God. It's going to cover the earth during that millennial reign of Christ, the thousand year reign of Christ. He's literally, again, reigning on the earth and Jerusalem is going to be his headquarters and we're going to rule and reign with him. And guess what? He doesn't need our help, but he allows us to rule and reign with him. We get to participate with him. And the scriptures say that he's going to rule with a rod of iron. So it's going to be an enforced righteousness. There's not going to be any sin. So, Pastor Durrell, you're telling us we're going to come back with Jesus in glorified bodies and rule and reign with him. Absolutely, yes, that is what I'm saying. And the glorified bodies, by the way, they don't have a sin nature anymore. So we won't be able to sin anymore. Glorified bodies, no sin nature, no more decaying, no more sickness, no more dying for us when we come back with him. But there's going to be some people who are going to make it out of the tribulation and they're not going to have glorified bodies. And some of those people, they're going to reproduce. Oh, and when that thousand year reign is up, Satan is going to be released from his prison. He's going to deceive some of those people, some of those offspring. Going to deceive them. They're going to try to come against Jesus. And, and Jesus, of course, is going to get rid of the enemy once and for all. He's going to cast them into the lake of fire where the false prophet and the Antichrist is going to be. The Antichrist, the one who's going to rule during the tribulation period. Are they going to be cast into the lake of fire along with the false prophet who tries to get people to worship him? But like I said, Satan at that time, at the end of the tribulation period, I'm sorry, at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, oh, he's going to be cast into that lake of fire as well. Then the scriptures tell us, and that was in Revelation chapter 20, by the way, but in Revelation 21 tells us that then there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And that's what we call the eternal order. That's how things are going to be for eternity when you read uh, Revelation 21 and on. But yes, when we, when we see how imperfect the, the, this human government is, it does make us long for that eternal reign of Christ. And so, yes, saints, have a light touch on the things of this world. But yes, pray for those who are in leadership during this time. In verse 31, it says, Now they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ijalon, 
And so the people were very faint. They were tired. They were completely exhausted. And the people, they rushed on the spoil. They took sheep, oxen, and calves, and they slaughtered them on the ground. And the people, they ate those animals with the blood. And then they told Saul, saying, look, the people, the troops are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And so Saul said, you have dealt treacherously, or you have been unfaithful. You've sinned, talking to those people. He said, roll a large stone to me this day. And then in verse 34, Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep. Slaughter them here and eat and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. And so every one of the people, they brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. And then Saul built an altar to the Lord. And this was the first altar that he built to the Lord. And so after hearing that the people were eating the animal meat with the blood, Saul had a large stone set up and he told them, look, you bring the animals here and slaughter them on this large stone so that these animals will be slaughtered properly and they will bleed out properly. And so when we think about this sin of eating this animal flesh with the blood in it. The question has to come up, what's up with the blood? Or or in other words, why so much respect is placed on the blood? And so I'll try to hurry up through this mini lesson, but it needs to be touched on. So what's up with this blood or why respect the blood? Well, first of all, in in Genesis chapter 9, Now, this is as early as the days of Noah after the flood, by the way. This is what God said to Noah and to his sons. He said in Genesis 9, verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But, Genesis 9, 4, you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So why respect the blood or what's up with the blood? Well, number one, the life of the flesh is in the blood. In other words, when, when, you, talk, when you hear this talk about the blood, it represents life. And so when this blood is being poured out, it is this life, the life of the animals being poured out. And, and so not eating the, the, the flesh along with the blood is honoring the life of the animal. But also health-wise, we know that it's not a good idea to do that anyway. And so God is so wise. But then there's another scripture that was early on in, in the Old Testament. But now you, you have the children of Israel here now. And so in Leviticus 17, 11, now you have the Lord giving these following words to Moses to share with Aaron, his sons, and then the children of Israel. And he says, for the life of the flesh, once again, is in the blood, and I have given it to you. So now you have more information about what the blood is going to be used for. He says, I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. That is our immaterial part. So that's the area of our, speaking of the soul, it's the area of our emotions, our will, and consciousness. And it says, for... It is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And atonement, by the way, means to cover. In other words, we're atoning for sin. 
And so that sacrifice, when they sacrificed those animals as an atonement, it was a sacrifice for sin that was necessary to turn away condemnation and to do what? To restore people in fellowship to God or with God. And so it speaks of a process, speaking of atonement, it speaks of that process of bringing those who are enemies back into harmony or unity. And so we see reconciliation happening in atonement. And if you kind of break up that word, you can, it, it, it's an easy way to help you to remember the reconciliation that's taking place. And if you break it up, you can see at one meant in the word atonement. And so it speaks of reconciliation. And so that, that's why the blood was shed. The blood of the animals in the Old Testament was shed to cover the sins so that the, the, the fellowship with God and man can be restored. There be reconciliation. But here's the thing. The, the, the blood of the animals in the Old Testament was only an IOU. It was just a covering for a temporary amount of time because they were all pointing to Jesus, who was the ultimate atonement, a fulfillment of those IOUs, if you will. And so those IOUs of those animal sacrifices have been paid by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And and he is worthy to be our atonement. He is worthy to be our sacrifice because he is perfect. And Pastor Darrell, why is he perfect? It's because he was a perfect man. But before that, he was also and always perfect God. And so, yes, he is the perfect sacrifice. Hebrews 9.22, it says, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiving of sins. And so you begin to get a picture for why Jesus had to step out of eternity, take upon a human body that the Father prepared for him, and then go to the cross on Calvary to die for us, to die in our place, because we are the guilty ones. We have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We do not meet his standards. In other words, we've sinned. And when you talk about sin is talking about missing the mark. We're missing the mark of what? Of God's perfection. And so there is no way we can, guess what, atone for ourselves. We can't be our own sacrifice and then get to heaven that way. There's no way we can do that. And so we needed Jesus. And praise God, Jesus is not the propitiation just for us, but also 1 John 2, 2, for the whole world. And I can read that for you. It says, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the whole world. And so that's why I do not agree with what some people believe as limited atonement, which is one of the five points of Calvinism. I don't, we don't believe here in limited atonement. We believe that Jesus, when he died, he died for the sins of the whole world. And you see here that, that he's the propitiation for our sins. And, and Pastor Darrell, what is propitiation? It is one aspect of atonement. It is one aspect of uh, being reconciled to God. And so when we talk about Jesus being our propitiation, it means that he satisfied through his sacrifice the demands of God's holy wrath against sin. And only Jesus could satisfy that. And because he satisfied that, then guess what? He made way for reconciliation 
between man and God and anybody could be reconciled to God. Just repent. That means turn from your sins. Turn to God by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is that ultimate sacrifice. And so anytime we, we, we read about the respect for blood in the Bible, it should always make us think of that, um, that perfect sacrifice in Jesus. But, but picking up in verse 36, it says, Now Saul says, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. And let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. And then the priest said, Well, let us draw nearer to God. In other words, let, let's ask God here at this place. And and that is such a great idea. Even if you are already inclined to do something, take a step back and say, okay, let us draw near to God. Let's see what the will of God is. And it's also a good idea, even if you remember how God worked in a similar situation, because that doesn't mean he's going to work the same way in this new situation. We can't put God in the box. So this is a good idea that the priest brings up to King Saul. Let's draw near to God. Let's ask him. Let's see what his will is. In verse 37 of 1 Samuel 14, it says, So Saul asked counsel of God. Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them? Into the hand of Israel. But God did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come over here. All you chiefs of the people. And know and see what this sin was today. God didn't answer. So there must be some kind of sin. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel. Though it be in Jonathan my son. He shall surely die, but not a man among all the people answered him. And so, although Saul created the problem by by putting that unnecessary oath and curse upon the troops, we can still learn from what he said in verse 38. Because something he says in, in verse 38 is to know and see what this sin was today. And that's a good thing for us in our prayer lives. If, if it seems that maybe God is silent or maybe our prayers are not being answered, it's a, it's a good thing to see if there's some type of unaddressed sin in our lives. Lord, is there sin in my life? Can you reveal that to me if there's anything there? Because Psalm 66, 18 says this. It says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Some translation says, if I cherish iniquity, if I cherish sin or lawlessness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. In other words, if, if there's any sin in my heart and I know it's there and I'm not confessing it, the Lord will not hear. And so even though, like I said, King Saul was at fault in creating this problem, we can take something from verse 38. We, we can take that principle even in our own prayer lives. But then verse 40 King Saul said to all Israel, you be on one side and my son Jonathan and I will be on the other side. And the people, the troops said to Saul, do what seems good to you. And therefore Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, give a perfect lot or the right decision. And so Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. The army, in other words, were cleared. 
And Saul said, cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. We're going to find out who committed the sin today, in other words. And so Jonathan was taken. And then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me, what have you done? And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand. So now I must die. He was ready to die. And Saul answered, God do so and more also for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day, or he did this with God's help. And so the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. And then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. And so to identify who's the guilty party, Saul decided to have lots cast, and and it's probable that they used the Urim and the Thummim for this purpose. And the names Urim and the Thummim, for example, or, uh, actually means the lights and perfections. And many people believe that these were stones that were kept in the pouch of the high priest's breastplate. And they were used in determining God's decisions in certain questions and issues. And so, again, many people believe that this is what was going on here when they cast lots. But one thing I want you to notice is the people's observations of Jonathan because they saved him from being killed by his father, King Saul. And one thing the people observed about Jonathan is that he worked with God. What about us? Well, people notice that about us, that we partner with God, that we work with him. But also another thing to observe is The fact that the people praised Jonathan. The people praised Jonathan. Jonathan did not praise himself. There's a lesson in humility there because in Proverbs 27, 2, it says to let another man praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. So as a result of what these people have seen in Jonathan's life, they stepped in to save Jonathan from being killed by his father. You see, Jonathan did not have to defend himself. See, God gave him favor with men. And the lesson for us is that we don't have to defend ourselves either. We just continue to live for God, work with God, and then we allow God to take care of everything else, whether it's favor with men or stepping in some other way to defend us or rescue us. And so we can learn a lot from those few verses. And as we pick up in verse 47, it says, So Saul established his sovereignty over Israel, and he fought against all his enemies on every side. He fought against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them. And he gathered an army, and he attacked the Amalekites, and he delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. And the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Jishuai, some believe this is Abinadab, and Malchishua. And the names of his two daughters were these, the name of the firstborn, Merab, and the name of the younger, Michal. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. 
And Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Now there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw a strong man or any valiant man, he took him for himself, just as what the Lord said through Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 11. And so now as we've been navigating through these past few lessons, what we notice is that Jonathan is a helper because we see him helping the Israelites' cause. And in this passage of Scripture that we study tonight, we've seen the opposite in his father, King Saul, because we saw that King Saul was more of a hindrance than a helper to the people. Oh, he was holding stuff back. He was messing things up. He was messing people up with his rash vow, that rash oath that he placed the people under. The scriptures tell us that it troubled the land. And so Jonathan Helper, King Saul, his father, more of a hindrance. And I wonder tonight, do you know people who are helpers? And do you know people who unfortunately have been hindrances or better yet to make this more personal are we helpers or are we hindrances are are we more of the jonathan are we more of the king saul who was more of the hindrance so in what ways can people what ways can you What ways can we be a hindrance or in what ways can we be a helper? What do you mean by that? Can you clarify, Pastor Durrell? You see, the person serving as a hindrance prevents people from eating. Oh, yes, in the lesson, King Saul prevented people from eating literally. And so when they came across the honey, they didn't touch it, even though it would have helped them. It would have given them more energy. So literally, his rash oath, him serving as a hindrance, prevented the people from eating while they could have been eating and being refreshed and restored and strengthened. Oh, but today, there's some people, unfortunately, who are serving as hindrances in a metaphorical way or in a spiritual way. And as a result, we have some saints who are starving because you have some people under the banner of Christianity, even some churches under the banner of Christianity, where the people could be eating and could be re-energized spiritually. All oh, the people are starving because they are being withheld from the real food the meat of the word, and being, they're being fed, in some cases, junk, even if they're not being held from something at all. So some people not being fed at all, some people are just being fed junk, in other words. So yes, some people serve as hindrances. Some churches serve as hindrances in that way, preventing the people from eating from being refreshed by the word of the Lord. Oh, but the helper is going to be someone who points someone in the right direction of of where, how, and what to eat. 
So, so this is where you go, the helper would say to, for this word. Oh, you want to know more about this topic? Here, you go to this chapter. Oh, you want to know how to study the word of God? Let me, let me, let me sit down with you and, and show you how to study the word of God. Let me point you to some resources so you can eat a little bit of this honey, this, this, this sweet word of God here and be refreshed. That's what the helper would say. We will point someone in the right direction of, of what to eat and, and how to eat the, the, the bread of the word, the honey of the word, if you will, and, and where you can go to eat. Or you may not uh, place your membership here or fellowship here, but we should be at least able to say, hey, you may not, if you're not able to come here, at least go here and get the bread of the word. That church is solid or this website is solid or this study Bible is solid. We should be able to be helpers pointing someone in that right direction of, of how to eat. And then the person who's a hindrance. Just like King Saul did in his lesson, contributes to the weakness of the people. So not only withholds them from the word, from the food, so to speak, but, but then contributes to the people's weakness. And, and there's some churches and, and some folks today who contributes to the saints growing faint, to the saints growing Weak. They're, they're more, more focused on these, these, these worldly theories and all these type of things that are going on in the world than focusing on the word of God and the people. Once again, they're growing weak. The people are starving, but the helpers, in other words, they're going to build people up in the word of God. They're going to share a timely word with the people to build them up. And then, of course, you have some serving as hindrances who are preventing the saints from being more successful. Oh, they could have been more successful. They experienced some victories, but then the hindrance, the person serving as a hindrance comes in and they, and they get in the way. Or maybe they put some form of legalism upon that person, upon the saints. Oh, the person is walking in the spirit and they're doing just fine. They're growing. They're experiencing victory after victory. They're experiencing victory over their flesh. But oh, somebody comes in and they bring some legalism. They think they found something new in the Bible. Well, you know we're not supposed to be doing this. Oh, oh, you know we're not supposed to be eating this putting legalism on people instead of taking all of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation in context, preventing the saints from being more successful than they could have been, just like King Saul did in a lesson. Because remember what what Jonathan had said in verse 30, he he said, if the people had eaten there for, for now, would there not have been a much greater slaughter? So in other words, if, if we didn't get in the way, if the hindrances didn't get in the way of the people's spiritual walk, of them walking in the spirit, wouldn't the people experience more success and more victory in the spirit? But unfortunately, there are hindrances. So are we a hindrance or are we a helper? Because if we're a helper in this sense, in this example here, then we're going to do everything possible to help the saint to succeed 
to help the saints to succeed in their marriages, to help the saints to succeed in their relationships, then we're not going to gossip because gossips, they, they tear apart relationships. And so that will be a hindrance. But no, we want to build up. We want to counsel. And in fact, we want to give godly counsel. And, and we want to be a helper to help people over their struggle with sin because we all struggle with sin. And so we're in this fight together. And so instead of being a hindrance, are we being a helper? Are we coming alongside people? Are we mentoring them? Or better yet, a better word in the church is, are we discipling people in the word of God? But how about in this example, a hindrance can even indirectly cause other saints to sin. You see, just like King Saul did, he indirectly caused the Israelites to sin because they were so hungry chasing those Philistines. They were so hungry after fighting. Their energy had waned and they were weak. And so they didn't even bother draining the blood properly. They just ate the meat with the blood and everything. And so he indirectly caused the people of Israel, those troops to sin and and a hindrance in the body of Christ or somebody who claims to be a Christian. Oh, they can cause other saints to stumble or, or sin by living a hypocritical lifestyle. Or maybe by enjoying a, a liberty that may cause another saint to stumble. Oh, but I have my Christian liberty, but, but brother or sister in Christ, does that Christian liberty that, that you're using, that you're enjoying, is it causing another saint to struggle? Or, or you may have that liberty to sip wine here and there, and you're not getting drunk, as long as you're not getting drunk. But, but are you causing another saint to struggle while you're using that liberty? Because maybe that other saint used to be an alcoholic, but now you're using, you're insisting on using that Christian liberty and causing them to stumble. So are you, are we being a hindrance? Are we being a King Saul? Or are we a helper? Are we a Jonathan in this case? Because a Jonathan, a helper, will promote walking in holiness, will promote living a Christ-like life, not just by what we say, but by what we do. We should be able to say like the Apostle Paul, to follow me as I follow Christ. Or imitate me as I imitate Christ. Same idea. But, but here's the thing. When we talk about being a helper, because I, I know that's on a lot of our hearts. We don't want to be a hindrance. We want to be a helper. We want to be a blessing to people. We don't want to get in people's way of them growing in their fellowship with the Lord. We don't want to get in the way of them being successful in the ministry God has given to them. We don't want to be in the way in a negative way. And I know it's on many of our hearts to be a helper, but, but, but check this out. If, if we are helpers or, or we want to be helpers, it's going to be because of the helper. And the helper is who? The Holy Spirit. And it'll be the helper, the Holy Spirit, working through us. So if you want to be a helper tonight, and many of you are, 
I've seen many of you serve and be a blessing to other saints. But those of you who want to continue in that way, who want to be in that number, those of us who want to stop being a hindrance and become a helper, I want to say depend on the Holy Spirit, the helper. So worship team comes to the stage. Father, we thank you for tonight. Help us, Lord, to be a helper to others in their walk with you, to be helpers to others in their, in their outreaches and ministries. And if we've been a hindrance in any way, Lord, I know you are forgiving God. And I just pray that you stir our hearts if we've been a hindrance to sincerely ask you for forgiveness. And Lord, you are a forgiving God. And we thank you that you'll forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But Lord, help us to be more like Jesus. Help us to be more of an asset to people in their lives. Help us to be more of an asset, a helper in the church. To be more of a blessing or a helper in our communities. But we ask that you would help us to do it through the power of your spirit. Help us to surrender. Help us to be sensitive to your Holy Spirit, Father. We praise your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.